Welcome to Better in Real Life, a podcast from the Trestle Collective. I'm your host, Jonathan McGinty, and in this series I like to have conversations with good folks doing some interesting, pretty cool things. This week I catch up with David Tyler, a professor at UMass, and Joe Cobbs, a professor at Northern Kentucky. They're the team behind No Rivalry, and Jonah Krebs, one of their students, joined us as well. No Rivalry is an academic research project that attempts to map out the passion behind rivalry contests, regardless of scope, size, and sport. And as David pointed out in our conversation, rivalries also are full of lessons that go beyond the playing field. Joe and I, but particularly Joe, have used this in the classroom to help students understand uh, global sport. And Joe in particular teaches a course on international uh, was it international rituals and rivalries? Is that the name of it or something? Yeah. Yeah. But like, like, like so much of what we do is using, you know, sport in order to understand other things, these bigger principles. And so, uh, we, we look at rivalry as the, um, focal point, but you're looking at cultural differences and meanings and that whole, uh, cities or countries put on these different issues. And, you know, you, you can study uh, the Cold War through a rivalry lens. You know, you're learning about it from a sports standpoint, but really you're learning much more about just sociology and social psychology and human groups and behaviors and governments and policies and history and, and, and um, you know, political science. There's just so much that goes into it. And so even though it looks like we're talking about sports, it's really, it's the other stuff that where we can learn from, from using rivalry to do so. David and Joe first got connected at UMass when the former was seeking help with the meaning of the word rival. Given Joe's background in sports marketing, both in the professional and collegiate level, the two found a common purpose in sorting through what it meant to be a rival. For Joe, it's a journey that started with some gentle pushback against a former boss. You know, I would write the copy for radio and, and our TV commercials and, you know, have him edit the copy, you know, proofread and edit it for me before we recorded it. And he would always insert that word rival anytime we were playing another conference opponent, you know, Miami's in the Mid-American Conference. So it didn't matter if it was Bowling Green or, or Ohio University or Toledo or whoever, Central Michigan, he would insert that word rival. And we would argue about it, you know, and I would argue you can't call every team a rival or it loses all of its meaning. Um, and it was, again, a somewhat friendly argument, but also a serious one. Like I was serious. I didn't think that that was appropriate. Of course, he was my boss, but I was also the one who got to manage the recording. So sometimes I would take it out and hope that he didn't notice. Um, but that, that sort of put that seed in my mind uh, and then meeting David uh, at UMass uh, and what he shared, you know, when he couldn't find a, a definition in the academic literature to use in a, you know, in a paper, an academic paper, uh, we started kind of talking about it. And it was a conversation that eventually led to, to this project. Joe, you mentioned you had that first job working with the Pistons when you got out of school. Were both of y'all interested in sports? I mean, if you're like me, I'm, I'm, I'm barely 5'8", 150 pounds. My athletic career did not advance past middle school. So, but I love sports. So I became a sports writer when I graduated. Did y'all grow up loving sports and wanted to be a part of it? 
Yeah, well, I similar to you again. Um, I was not. I was a junior high quarterback, and I realized quickly that I was not built to play quarterback um, or play American football at all. Um, so, uh, so yes, I was. I was interested in sports, and actually, I was an undergrad at, at Miami University. And was not even aware that this career path really existed, career path in terms of sports business, you know, working on the business side of sports until I took a sports marketing class as an elective. I was a marketing major, marketing and finance major as an undergrad. And uh, that professor just really turned me on to the fact that, hey, there's a career here um, if it's something that you want to explore. And um, so that's what kind of led me in that path uh, as an industry Um as an industry for, for my career, David. And, and for me, I was, um, I went to Notre Dame undergrad and was on the fencing team there and they had a spectacular fencing team, gold medal winners, national champions, whatever. I was not any good. I was just tall enough to be good target practice pretty much. Um, <laughs> but I got to know the fencing people and the administrators and whatnot. And after graduation, I went and worked in Chicago doing consulting and then uh, through conversations with, I was one of the uh, ADs there at the time, or associate ADs there, uh, a guy named Bernard Muir. He was told me about this path. Like Joe, I didn't I had no idea this existed, this, this course of study. Um, and so I went back and I coached fencing for a year back in Notre Dame, which really was less coaching and more what is now considered a director of operations role mm -hmm. uh, because I did all the stuff that the fencing coaches didn't want to do the recruiting, the budget, the uh, dealing with the administration. I loved doing that and they didn't want any part of it. So that freed up their time to actually coach, uh, which is good. Cause I still couldn't teach the fencers anything. Cause I was still wasn't any good. Uh, but that, that got me interested in that. I went, um, for my master's in MBA uh, and master's in sport management, I realized during the process that studying sport fans was really what was most interesting to me. And just this idea of, you know, how people identify with teams and, you know, become attached to their clubs and the communities that form. And so really it, th this interesting rivalry came out of an interest in studying fan communities and these fan groups uh, that form around sports. I did the the survey, so I'd like to talk about that with you all in a minute. Um, but that that initial paper, you had to find, you had to explore the meaning of that word, and you all got connected and go from there. How does that lead to where you are now with no rivalry? How does that, um, you know, what what was that journey like? When did you all start thinking this is something that? could be a value to businesses and for, for research and for fan communities. How did y'all start to say, let's, let's, let's pursue this. We, we first started looking at it in a, um, we were taking a research seminar together, David and I, and, um, and we did some initial interviews, uh, qualitative, you know, just to asking fans, um, who their favorite team was and who were those teams biggest rivals and why was it a rivalry was so very some you know semi-structured or very open-ended i guess you could say um and then we recorded all of those you know and, and looked through and we were looking for you know some commonalities um amongst what they were saying to kind of give us a baseline, right? Like um, as much as rivalries talked about you know on sports talk radio and in the media um, 
there wasn't a lot of rivalry research that was what we call cross-sectional, meaning across a bunch of different rivalries. There was some really good in-depth research uh, into particular rivalries, but there wasn't any um, look across a lot of rivalries. And so that's what that's where we saw um, an opportunity uh, that we were curious about. And so because there wasn't a lot to build from in that regard, um, that's how we started out. And then we pulled from a lot of social psychology literature because a lot of that's relevant um, in terms of how people feel in groups and out groups. Um, and now what we've done recently, or we started with college football because, I mean, what a great place to start with all the traditions and right. everything around rivalry. And we had both worked in collegiate athletics. And so we had some really good uh, industry connections there and understood the industry very well. Um, and so we started with that. And then from there, um, we discerned these elements of rivalry that seem to be pretty consistent. Now, the, the combination of elements is different. Uh, across different rivalries, we like to think of it a little bit like a recipe uh, for rivalry uh, or a formula for rivalry. The formula is different for different rivalries, but the ingredients are pretty much the same um, in different combinations. And so then we, we knew we needed to expand from that because college football is obviously fun, but very specific to a certain context. And so we started looking at professional sports. Uh, a few years ago in the United States and Canada. And then since then, um, students uh, like Jonah Krebs, who's here with us, have helped us expand it uh, just in the last year uh, internationally. Well, two years ago, we, we went to India um, with a colleague there, Sean Starr, helped us collect data in India on cricket, um, which has the best domestic cricket league in the world. And then... Um, and then we expanded into Europe and now we've got surveys in South America and Australia. Uh, and Jonah has been like a superstar recruiter for us, um, recruiting fans to take the survey. Well, and, and I would imagine, and, and, you know, when I was doing the survey, you mentioned commonality. So this is going to be a weird example. Like let's, let's take uh, Michigan, Ohio state, or, you know, I'm a, I'm a, even though I'm, even though I'm down in Georgia, I'm a loyal Boston sports fan. That's a whole different podcast topic probably, but I'm a big Red Sox fan. So Red Sox, Yankees, people know about those. I did an article a couple of um, maybe about last year on this obscure college table tennis rivalry between Anderson college and Augusta college. And when I was doing the survey, I saw all of the similar things when I talked to the players who were involved, it was, well, they were the best and we were the best. So we wanted to beat them and they were only 90 minutes away. So we wanted to show them, you know, every year. So it, I thought, you know, now that you mentioned that, and I noticed that in the survey, it doesn't matter what the sport is or how big or how well-known the rivalry is that passion between the programs and, and everything uh, it, is there. Yeah. I, I, I love that you mentioned that. And I don't know if you noticed both Joe and I, Reach to scribble that down because I know we're both going to research that as soon as this call ends. Um, but the, the the rivalry has meaning to the people who are involved in it. So I may have never heard of that table tennis rivalry, but that doesn't make it any less meaningful for those who are engaged with it. And uh, it, it's it's sports, right? It's all the meaning that we put on it as people. Uh, we, we're the ones who create the importance of these events. And so rivalry is 
along with that. So if, if this table tennis rivalry is important to those who are involved, then it, it has that intensity and it has those factors and, and it doesn't, and, and we're talking about it in sports, but it doesn't need to be sports. It could be politics. It could be brands. Uh, some people are really passionate about their Samsung or Apple or Chevy or Ford, things like that. It's, it's this identity uh, around where the sport serves this focus of one's identity. And I think that's an important point about the way that we approach it in our research is when you're, you know, when you took the survey or if any of your listeners go to our website, norivalry.com and they take the survey, you'll notice we don't define rivalry for you in the survey. You know, we do it in our academic papers, but in the survey, we don't tell you what it is. It's up to you to decide what it is. So our survey is purpose, purposefully built to be very, um, user focused in terms of it's your perspective as the fan. And so we'll get into, you know, friendly debates sometimes about people saying, well, you know, this such and such isn't a rivalry. And, you know, they'll be arguing about something in our data and I'll be like, well, don't argue with us. Like, this is what the fans, you know, the fans of these teams said, I don't, you know, all we're doing is reflecting or trying to create a measurement system that reflects hopefully accurately um, how they feel about a particular rivalry. And so you have to go to those fans and, and ask them, and that's what we try and do, uh, with the project. Yeah. It, you know, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to go through my survey results with y'all to see a little bit of, um, a little bit of, uh, y'all's thoughts on it as well. But Jonah, I'd love to ask you, you know, this is well, one, aside from this being, if you have to work, this is a super cool opportunity. Um, so, uh, to, to have some sort of experience in, in college. Um, what, um, you know, when you were doing some of the recruiting for some of these fans and opening up, what were, what surprised you? Were there any, like, what were, when you were going through these results and talking to these fans and doing all of that, what from the cert, from the, the, the research surprised you? Well, for one thing, whenever I would post a message, you would see some interesting responses that used some interesting language. That's, that's the very, that was my first, uh, my first thought is you can really see the passion in it though. So that was something that I noticed is really important. And as I've uh, expanded to do more leagues in more countries, you really start to learn about how diverse rivalry is and how far and how long some of these rivalries have been. Uh, uh, with college sports, you know, I, I'm a big fan of sports in the U.S. And in recent years since playing soccer, a lot of come to watch a lot of Premier League games. I was blown away by some of the teams, fans of Premier League teams listed as their biggest rivalries. I mean, I was I was just in shock. Like, I've never even heard of this team before. And fans are asking me why they can't pick that team as their biggest rival. So it was all, it was really educational for me to learn about some of the different rivalries. And now we're expanding to even more teams. I think we have 60 or getting close to 70 different surveys for leagues. So I've really enjoyed the process of learning about different uh, teams and leagues and rivalries. 
I mean, and you get in those Premier League teams, you got you're talking 150 plus years of rivalry there. I mean, it's it, it's yeah, for Jonah. He was he was on the front end this year of the uh, responding comments. He he filtered them before they got to Joe and me, which was nice of him. No Rivalry has a survey set up at its website, NoRivalry.com, where fans can share their insights about who they view as their favorite team's biggest rival. Well, obviously I had to fill it out because I can't pass up an opportunity to discuss my disdain for Georgia Tech with a pair of experts in this field. I pick Georgia football. I'm a Georgia graduate, live in the Athens area, and I'm a bit different. I'll, let me clarify that. I think if today you asked any Georgia football fan, they'd list Florida, maybe Auburn as the top rival. I am old school. Georgia Tech is our biggest rival. What I found interesting as I was doing your survey is when, you know, you're because I understand you're, you're trying to sort of understand why I picked them. And I kept not ranking, or at least in my mind, I was not giving them the right answers to make you all understand why they were a rival, if that makes sense, because they haven't been as a competitive program for Georgia football the past few years. Um, there is the geographic closeness. I mean, it's an hour away in Atlanta, but they're in a different conference. Out, I mean, since the 90s, there really hasn't been two big players in the program at the same time going against each other, nor have there really been tremendous iconic moments in the past 20 years. It's been good being a Georgia fan in that rivalry for the for a while. But I couldn't put my I couldn't put my finger on it because I don't know why I consider Georgia Tech the biggest rival outside of the fact that I just have a deep personal dislike of them. And it's rooted in like my childhood, probably. So this is a long winded uh, backstory to sort of ask, how difficult is it to quantify something that doesn't feel quantifiable? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's certainly probably the biggest challenge is figuring out what's the best way that we can think of to try and represent these rivalries across lots of different rivalries, right? And you bring up a good point in that um, sometimes my students, uh, I teach a rivalry class that Jonah was a student in last year um, at NKU. Uh, and students will say, well, it's a rivalry because of the media or because of the passion behind it, you know? Um, and so what I always challenge them is, well, why is the media covering it? You know, why is there so much passion? Like those are sort of symptoms of some sort of underlying factor. And so what we're trying to get to are those underlying ingredients that create it. But yet you bring up a good point that we're not done. Like we're not settled that those are the only 10 ingredients or those are the best ways to represent those ingredients. We've changed that the wording of it a little bit over time as, as we continue to talk to fans like you and, and learn more about, um, about their feelings, you know, and get them to think deeper. And hopefully our survey does exactly what it did for you, makes you think a little bit more about it. Um, and sometimes, uh, fans will put stuff in the, in the open-ended questions that are within the survey that help us to sort of push that, that science along a little bit further, you know? Um, and so 
there's limitations certainly to our method, you know, and we're always looking to improve it. And it will probably look a little bit different five. I'm sure it'll look different five or 10 years from now. There'll be mm-hmm. hopefully a decent amount of consistency because we've now been doing this for, for five to six, seven years. Um, and so we've learned some stuff over that time, but it's, it's kind of an, a never ending process or an iterative process, I guess you could say, to continue to, um, to try and improve it. So, so Jonathan, let me ask you, the Georgia Tech, the Georgia-Georgia Tech rivalry taking less prominence over the years, as you said, people were shifting in their, you know, with Auburn and, um, you know, Florida, of course, uh, more attention going there. Uh, how, how, is, how have you felt as a fan that there has been this shift in focus away from Georgia Tech? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, I get the Florida component. Well, I mean, I get both of them because they're, they're conference rivals. The Florida game is essentially as it has been for the past 20 years, the winner of that wins the SEC East. Uh, you, you know, you get the right to lose to Alabama in the championship game. <laughs> um, then, so I get that. And Auburn, I get because, you know, it's the oldest rivalry in the South. So I, I understand that. I don't know, you know, because I can't even point to like a family connection. Like it isn't like my father's biggest rival is tech. He would say Florida, you know, so it hasn't necessarily bothered me. What has been uh, concerning for me is be it, last year, they didn't have the game because of COVID SEC did a conference only schedule. Um, and there was some discussion among the fan base because Georgia's won like 17 of the 20 past meetings with them you know, do we even need this game anymore? Oklahoma, Nebraska is no longer a thing, you know, uh, Texas A&M in Texas, though that will probably come back now because Texas is coming in the conference. So that concerned me because I like having that game because it's wonderful when you win and it's crushing when you lose. So, so that definitely was, was concerning to me that the game could go away. I mean, I don't think it will, but it's always in the back of some of the fans' minds. So that, that that's, uh, one of the things that we, what Joe was talking about is how things have evolved, have evolved. Some German colleagues did a great study where they asked um, fans where they wanted their rival to finish in the league table. And in the German football uh, soccer system, the bottom teams get relegated, which means they get booted down to the lower level for the next season. And so what fans said is that they wanted their rival to finish at the bottom, but just above the relegation zone. They didn't want them kicked out of the league because they want that game and they want to have that rivalry because rivalry is a lot about a a shared narrative with this other team or with these games of the past or with these conspicuous characters who have taken part in this um, rivalry over the years. And it's the, the, this history of it is what brings that in, enjoyment and meaning to the game. And so your, your feelings there are, I, I think, very, certainly we, we've seen that throughout our research and yeah. um, throughout rivalries is that people want that rivalry to happen. It's, it's, and, and rivalry is different than hate, right? There, there, you know, there's elements in there, but you, you still want that rivalry. And, and the worst thing is indifference. You know, the team that doesn't, nobody sees them as a rival. 
Right. Those are the ones that get really concerned. You'd rather have be seen as a rival. Uh, what, what's it better to be hated than ignored? Yeah. 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 Some, yeah. It, well, that's, you know, and that's sort of the, I have a friend who is a Tennessee fan and he said that's his biggest concern because Tennessee's had X number of years where they just haven't been relevant in Georgia and Florida and all of these longtime rivals. We don't even really think about them as much anymore because they're not in that top tier competitive echelon as they were. They might get back. I think they've made a good hired coach, but um, you know, so that's, that's definitely a concern. So the, well, well, go ahead, Jeff. David, well, I just want to say, I wanted to emphasize a point that David made about the narrative as it relates to some of what you were describing, Jonathan, with some of those rivalries that have sort of lost prominence is, you know, a narrative is, as you know, well, composed of all these sort of different um, components to it. Right. Um, And when some of those start to drop off or lose their uh, interest um, to the audience, that's when the narrative starts to falter. Right. And I think that that's the danger. Um, well, it's certainly the danger when teams don't play each other. Right. Is is there's there's still right. uh, a foundation that a narrative could develop in terms of recruiting or, or things like that. Um, but, you know, the consistency of play is one of our elements. And, and in a lot of cases is rated as sort of the most important element by fans um, because you need that baseline that creates an opportunity for other other elements to emerge. Um I have, I just wanted to ask a follow-up question of you though, like about the Georgia, Georgia tech rivalry, how much do you interact with Georgia tech fans compared to like Auburn and Florida fans? Well, now that's, now that's an interesting point. I don't was well, and, and this may blow your research in the other way. I don't, I don't know. I don't really interact with a lot. I, I used to have a colleague who's a friend of mine who was very close to the program, was a graduate. He works as an engineer and I worked with him on a lot of projects and we would rip each other a good bit. I work with a ton of Florida people. I mean, my business partner, Joe, is a Florida fan, a diehard. Like he, his level of dislike of Georgia is demonstrably higher than my dislike of Florida. Um, so it's, and then I think a handful of people, maybe I just solely engage with on Twitter who are tech people and it's okay. all good natured. It's nothing... Nothing I just necessary. want, I was just curious, you know, yeah. I was trying to dig into your, um, your feelings a little bit more there. That's I did, the researcher in me. I need, I needed to ask a follow-up question. I, I did have, this is probably more of a therapist question, but, uh, or answer, but I did have, when I was in elementary school, there was a large group of older kids who were tech fans and they would often make comments about Georgia. So I've, I've all I've usually kind of said, that's where my my rivalry roots are is, is that third grade experience. And then it's just tech hasn't been able to keep up with the times. So <laughs> that's been good for me as a Georgia fan. Yeah. Um, we usually kind of lump in um, that social element of interacting with a lot of fans with our element of spatial proximity, right? Because you, right. Uh, even though there's obviously virtual communication nowadays and quite a bit of it, but it's still not the same as when you're interacting face to face. And so that's something that, you know, that, we could keep in mind is how can we represent that element to include that assumption that we make, but is not explicit in the survey. And I know that might not apply to you, but um, I'm kind of making a mental note about that.
Better in Real Life is a production of Trestle Collective. It's hosted by me, Jonathan McGinty, with original music and editing by Joe Van Hoos. For more, visit TrestleCollective.com, and be sure to let us know what you think of the show.